Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of AZT or Adopting Zero Trust. I am Elliot, your producer, alongside your actual host, Neil Dennis, and a wonderful guest, which comes from a company, uh, which I know absolutely all of our listeners are going to be familiar with. And frankly, we'll be able to speak to a myriad of topics that just are more than aligned with Zero Trust, but in general modern cybersecurity principles and concepts. That being said, I'm going to hand this off actually real quick to Neil uh, to give a little bit of introduction to Paskey's, um, maybe what his perspective is. And then we're going to hand this off to our guest for a proper introduction. Yeah, sounds like fun. I, I will be very upfront. I love them. I, I, I hate them when I lose it, obviously. Uh, but I've always been a fan of hard-coded stuff like that to carry around with you and lose. But the fun thing with YubiKeys and things like that, you know, aside from the wonderful MFA-esque approach to life with the key that it supports and digital MFA versus physical MFA, I mean, uh, I, I like being able to plug and play and get to going. There's a reason why password managers are so successful on the digital side of the house. And there's a reason why YubiKey is so successful and, and all the variations therein. I, I think they make a wonderful statement on your keychain, especially when you've got eight of them all lined up. And then, but yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of this. I think they make the world a lot less complicated in the password password world when you have them applied the right way. And I think they are a great stopgap to a lot of the starter package of security concerns that we have out there. And for the listeners in general who may not realize what this actually is, it's a literal physical device that you take around with you and plug in, you know, get your little one-time password MFA type thing to log into it, if you will, whatever you want to say and authenticate, and then you're good to go for the most part to certain things. You remove the key, you're done. It's like military CACs. For those of us out there who've ever used those, very similar concept, except smaller, easier, and nobody asks to see it when you go through a gate, so. Perfect. All right, so I think Neil incidentally or sort of spoiled who we're going to be discussing these topics with, but to make sure that we don't kind of gloss over that, Derek, maybe you can give us a little bit of introduction to yourself. We're currently at uh, and then I've got to also, of course, bug you because you've got some pretty cool companies on your 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 history there too. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so my name is Derek Hansen. I, I work with Ubico. I've been here for a little over eight years now. Um, it's been a it's been a phenomenal journey. Uh, getting to work on building not just how the YubiKey works as a product, but where the YubiKey works in the ecosystem. Uh, making sure that you know passwordless multi-factor authentication is just like built into all these applications so that the utility of of it the YubiKey itself becomes increased because i think what you just said neil a key part of that is like hey can i just sign in can i take a physical device that i have control on that sits there that lets me just access my applications so i work at yubico specifically around uh, the standards how the fido policy protocols get built um, our alliances how we work with partners to make sure that these open standards we've just built actually end up in product that we can use day in and day out. Um, and it, it's really focused on sharing the word about like, hey, how does this stuff work? What should you be doing with it? What should you 
ignore what's important, you know, because all of the stuff creates its own hype cycle, you know, and you want to make sure that you're actually giving people real usable information. And so that's kind of that's kind of that role there. And I think that's what brings us here together today to talk. Love it. Yeah. So that that is exactly the the focal point that we'll probably go into. Again, if you're a listener to our show, you know, we'll start somewhere. We'll end off on, you know, an entirely different planet. But um, before we kind of go too far into the world of pass keys and some of the pretty advanced stuff that y'all have been at the forefront of, um, you know, I'd love to maybe hear a little bit about your journey and, you know, what brought you there. You've got a pretty long, you know, time over at, you know, Yubico. Which you know, in our space, <laughs> uh, that many years, it's, uh, it means something to be at a company that long. Obviously, there's a lot of value uh, in you know what they're putting together, and obviously, you've got a lot of faith in what they're doing. But maybe even before we get to that piece, you know, obviously, you cut your teeth in IT world. You have some significant background in solution architecture, but you've also done some identity work as well for a rather large organization. I don't know if we're name dropping, but I'll, I'll edit that out if not, but over at Costco, at least for a year uh, until you, you know, ended up and really built that trajectory over to where you're at now. But I just love some visibility into like what that pathway looks like to get to where you are today. Yeah. So I can be long winded, but let me keep the story to like a reasonable amount of time here. Um, so I, I grew up in a small logging town um, in Washington. And the reason I bring that up is it also happens to be the area where um, Bill Gates had a summer home. And so we grew up in kind of the shadow of where he had a summer home out in the Hood Canal in Washington, beautiful place. And, but it was always like, you know, it felt like you were in the shadow of Microsoft as a young kid, really wanting to learn technology. And so I got this experience where I was able to work at our, you know, the local school district and I had run, I'd run 30 odd miles of cat five by the time I had my driver's license, you know, and was involved in just really this great opportunity to learn the technology. And so that started at a very young age where this enam being enamored, seeing like Bill Gates, a burger master in town, um, evolved into pursuing computers. And it was really just this fashion, this um, passion around how they work, how to get in. And for whatever reason, I was in identity from almost the ground from almost day one. It got involved in a, a netware migration over to Active Directory. And these are um, when it first came out. It was a, actually should have been Windows Advanced Server at that time. So it's, it's crazy how long this journey has been. But to that end, where you're talking about identity and architecture, I actually did some work in, in a security space. And somebody joined the practice that we were at. And I got involved very heavily focused on identity, worked with companies like uh, Ping Identity, deploying their federation services for their customers, worked with companies like IBM and some of the work they did in the automotive space. I'll leave all the customer names out because that's 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 their world. But really, the, the journey of it was getting a chance to see some of the largest companies in the world deal with some of the very complex situations on actually signing in. You know, and, and trying to figure out how to make that easy. So um, part of that work ended up where I landed at Costco for a couple of years, about 18 months, and left um, their kind of their enterprise architect um, before to come join Yubico as a young startup um, and really work on a very specific technology focus. But it's always been about how do we know who people are? How do we make it easy for them to sign in? How do we make it secure? And 
these are the foundations of the MFA projects I had done for years at the point before joining Ubico, but it was focused around everything I didn't realize I was going to be working for the next eight years. This was as Zero Trust was just a concept and starting to be talked about in small rooms. It was as MFA was these things that we were doing to people, not things actually protecting ourselves. So, um, you know, there was, it's been an incredible journey. Um, but it's all been identity focused. It's all been around how do we make sure we give users the right way to sign into the systems they need to at the right time. That's incredibly impressive, especially since like, you know, you accidentally found a narrow piece of that cybersecurity world kind of from day one, and it's led you to where you are today. So uh, I feel like Neil won't shun me for kind of calling this piece out, but uh, of all the companies that sort of align or can slap zero trust on their product. Um, obviously you all are definitely on that top of the list where, you know, I'm fine saying, yeah, it's, it's not like a VPN. You also just clearly allow <laughs> for that concept to sing true. So I think that is where I'm going to actually hand this off to Neil, where we can have that conversation where, how are you all navigating? You've been there. You've seen like how standard systems uh, allowed for access and identity, but you were part of the pioneering group to now have to navigate as the perimeter just doesn't exist anymore. Everything is blurred lines and all that good stuff. But um, yeah, this is where I'm going to hand you off to Neil. You get to have that uh, conversation and dig into that rabbit hole of how this stuff all functions in the zero trust world. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I guess it's back over to me. So I, I think well, we can kick it off a little light, Derek. So, you know, let, let's maybe talk about a little bit about the just the importance of a physical versus digital device, because I think that's obviously plays a huge role in why Ubico even exists is that variation. And to highlight, once again, in the gov space, CACs, you know, we had our certificates loaded up onto a, a card, right? Our ID. Uh, we also, a lot of us carried around RSA tokens, physical tokens, before you could do them on your phone. And well, can't do them on your phone in a skiff anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But regardless, you know, physical devices were always kind of at the forefront of of that security. So then the person becomes the true ultimate failure point, not a compromised device, uh, which depending on where you're at, hopefully is a little easier to secure sometimes. Um, but that's the reason why we have zero trust. So we can hopefully move beyond both of those paradigms. So anyway, I think it's a good starter package. Why a physical device versus a digital footprint in that sense, if you. Yeah. Well, I think when, when you start looking at how you authenticate, there's a million different ways that we could go around authenticating users, everything from passwords to push to OTP. You mentioned the the hardware security tokens. That that's kind of where I got my start in the first MFA, you know, rollouts was how do we send, you know, SMSs out to people for MFA or how do we actually do these other actual security tokens that work when SMS doesn't work. You know, the first deployment I did happened to be right on the border of US and Canada. And depending where you were, you jump between AT&T and Rogers network constantly. So yeah, SMS wasn't really reliable. And so we had hardware token um, as a good option for people. So when, when you look at what hardware's value is, it's a couple of, couple of clear points. One is that credential that goes onto that device doesn't leave that device. You know, it's on there. It doesn't get extracted and manufacturers and the technology vendors put a ton of effort into making sure that you can't steal the, the, the keys and the credentials of the secret information out of that device. You know, at Ubico, we use a industry-leading secure element. And that element, you know, we 
have focused very hev heavily on all the security controls around it so that the secrets can't be leaked. Um, that's a very long conversation around, you know, side channel analysis and all these other things. But the point of it is, is that there should be nothing that you can do with a hardware token to extract a secret from it that isn't incredibly obvious to the user. Oh, you beat me up and stole my token. Oh, you melted this thing down so you could use an electron magnoscope. Whatever those things are, it should be obvious to the user that something's wrong here. And so I think that's one of the major advantages of a physical device is it's always with you. It, it's very evident if it's been tampered with and you can bring it wherever you need to go. Um, what the challenge on the flip side of what you were calling that digital side, if it's in software, I don't know where it's been. I don't know where it's been copied to. I don't know if somebody took a copy of it because they got into my account. I do not have any sort of provenance information around that software credential because it could live anywhere. Um, and so it's really hard to establish trust in something that's not trustworthy in, in these high assurance scenarios. Yeah, I think there's, I, I personally agree with all that. Otherwise I wouldn't be using one. <laughs> that being said, I think there's a couple of key things in there for the listeners to unpack a little bit. One, we talk about the providence. We talk about access to the device and, and what that looks like. So, you know, I think that's why it took me a while to get rid of my RSA token in particular, because, you know, you didn't have to just use it on a government system. I, I had apps that I could use it for other stuff, which was very wonderful. Uh, the only downside is I can't plug it in like a YubiKey itself. So there's a hindrance there. But long and short, to your point, I could take it with me. I have apps or had apps on my system that didn't require internet to enable, but they did require some kind of MFA response, right? And so having an offline option, like you also mentioned, network latency, things like that, or even the network itself is untrustworthy, right? You know, there's a lot of things that, uh, like for my YubiKey, I use it as much as Elliot loves VPNs. When I do travel abroad, you know, I have a VPN service, a couple that I use, and before I even log into the actual internet itself, I can authenticate to the app on my laptop with my YubiKey. Whereas in other cases, you'd have to actually mm -hmm. log in, then enable, and then go. And there's all that handshake stuff that goes on before, right? So for me, that's a big piece of the puzzle is having the option to be offline, still get things spun up, and then go online, especially with other security protocols and things like that. And then the other piece, to your point, we had a wonderful discussion with a gentleman who owns a cell phone service provider, a cell phone service company, talks about, you know, cell phone takeovers and things like that. 99% of the people who use MFA have something loaded up on here through pick a flavor of auth, right? And the fun thing about that is, like you mentioned already, I get access to the phone. I at least have one step closer to getting access to the rest of your MFA, depending on how they're established. If your re-up for passwords is set up through your phone for a pin, congratulations, easy as peasy right there. I'm done. If it's set up through email, I could probably eventually get there as well. You know, it's just layers and layers that are easy. But if I take your YubiKey and I find out it's missing from my keychain, that's it. I change it, I deauth it, and I'm done. It's as simple as that. I don't have to worry about the other 500 things. I just get a new one, reauth, and I'm good to go usually. So for me, those are the big pieces of that puzzle. So that's pretty good stuff. Curiosity questions around how you start to see this play into more of of the more enterprise authentication methodologies, right? So there's a lot of people out there that are reliant on more traditional digital footprints for MFA. But if we think about the IT spectrum of the house, how important is it to remove that digital footprint and apply a physical piece for you in your mind? So that way the IT side in particular uh, gets a little closer to that more zero trust or more 
more secure environment that a digital footprint would kind of in the long run kind of mitigate a little more? Well, I mean, if you're thinking about zero trust, and let's just unpack what that is for a, for a moment here. It really means that I'm not, as a system, I'm not trusting some other system's um, authentication session. I didn't get on the network and just magically have access to everything. It is I've authenticated the user at the time that they showed up to know that this is who they claim to be. We're not trusting other, just being on the network as a valid signal. And so what that means is you need to have good, easy to use, quick, strong multi-factor authentication. And I emphasize the quick because the benefits of not using zero trust and just relying on the GUI core of a network to just allow access to anything is that I don't have to authenticate my users very often. And so if we're going to change user practice to where we authenticate you as you cross a new boundary and we make those boundaries smaller and smaller, we need to make sure it has minimal impact on their use case. And that's the entire scenario around FIDO2. Uh, FIDO2 is a passwordless multi-factor authentication protocol that was designed as um, the smart card capability that you mentioned in the PIV, which is how they sign electronically. It's designed to take that capability and stick it into web scale and web format. How do we sign in securely, prevent phishing in a scenario where the user doesn't have to be responsible to know exactly what's going on, but the system takes care of it. And it's got good, strong credentials that then actually meet the bar for multi-factor authentication. I bring that all together is if a user is going to sign into your system, they need something easy, fast, secure, and to sign in so that they're not hitting um, user experience hurdles in trying to access their applications. So the, the key parts in my mind here are getting a good authentication protocol paired with a good user experience added to each of those checkpoints where users now need to authenticate. We can no longer afford to have bad user experiences because you only hit it one time. No, you're going to hit it lots. It needs to be fast and it needs to be quick. So I, I think that's kind of in, in the vein of where you were trying to head with that question. I think for all of us, the, the benefit of strong, easy-to-use authentication is that we don't get saddled with a bad experience when we're, we're trying to sign in. Um, but we can also rely on the hardware uh, because the hardware can attest to its properties of how it's protected the keys. And so we'll move the security bar forward as well as the usability bar. And that's a pretty rare experience in my, in my time. Yeah. And no, I think it's great. I think it's a good explanation. So thank you. I feel like one of the other things that we're, we're going to get here a little bit sooner than later, but is uh, when we talk about passwordless environments, I do want to go down the, the ladder here with the, the, what are they called? The, the biometric fingerprinting that they're doing, right? The user identity based off of how you touch the keyboard, all this other junk, not, not just plain biometrics, but the user interactions. So before we get there, though, one of the things that, that I like about physical devices, and we saw this play out when I was in the government side of the house, you know, if someone does compromise a system and they're actively either A, replaying your session or B, actively engaged on your box in your session, in your solution, whatever it may be, nine times out of 10, the moment I take that card out, that session's done in a lot of cases back in the day. I know that's come a long way with, with other services like this now. 
So for those listening, I think that's one of the big things. Even if you're not secure all the way to the end user and someone still gets in, a lot of times that session's only as live and, and waiting to be re-authenticated in a, you know XYZ timeframe to that physical device every X minutes, hours, whatever it is. And the moment it's gone, you, when you plug it back in, you have to, it's re-authenticating. It's asking you for your pin. It's asking you for all the other things that it needs to get going again. So the original session is either paused or completely cut, depending on how you stage things. So I think for people listening, that that's a big piece of why physical devices, to me, play a real large, important role. Because even if you're, use, use pretty words, even if you're compromised, then, you know, there's the chance that you unintentionally cut that session when you get up to go to the bathroom, as long as you remember to take your device with you. And I, I, for me, that's a big piece, right? And so on that note, um, one of my curiosity questions for YubiKey that I've never dove down is, let's say if we set up software through enterprise and all this other stuff with y'all, can I maintain a time frame in the back end that requires it to recheck or at least authenticate that the device is still physically there? Or is that something not quite there? How does that work? I guess. I mean, so the scenario being, once again, I'm sitting at my box, someone does get onto the box, but yet, you know, I either remove the device or be a you know, it's trying to re-authenticate to that device every X. And if I'm just kind of jabbering to Elliot and the the threat actor doesn't do that, you know, because they can't. Does that is that a plausible scenario of security? Yes, it is a plausible scenario. Now, how well integrated it is is, is kind of a difficult uh, part of the question. It's going to the identity provider on that piece has to be able to do re-auth, and it has to interrupt what you're doing every so often to force a re-auth. Now. The reauthentication, yeah, if your YubiKey is present, it'll, it'll ask for a quick pin, touch the device, and make sure that you are intending to authenticate. And one of the things I think that often gets overlooked in some of the examination of FIDO is the touching of the device, or in what it's called in the standard is user intent. Does the human intend to, that is in possession of this device, intend to authenticate? And so it requires a gesture from the human. Some of the YubiKeys, it's a touch. Other times it's unlocking the device. It's a biometric. There's other things that are that qualify under a user intent. And I call that out as to your scenario of, hey, the session has been compromised. The bro the you know, the device has been compromised. User intent means that the device requires a person to be there to actually authenticate. Does it prevent other issues? Like if your device has been compromised, it's game over. You're completely, you're just done. If your session's been hijacked, well, if that identity provider is actually closing out the old session and reissuing a new on reauth, then you are preventing that session from living on. But if all they're doing is reauthing and giving you access back to your old session, you're kind of in, you really haven't solved the problem. You've just put a hurdle in front of the user. So I actually think one of the major challenges in it is not the reauth because the reauth can occur very easily. It's actually web application session management. And that is, that is its own nightmare of a problem <laughs> to discuss. So yeah, I, I think these are the right questions. One of the things that used to be a big topic was token binding. It was a, it was a feature that was physically tying your web session to the authentication hardware. It's not supported in the browsers anymore. There's a lot of there's a lot of challenges, but people have been asking that question for a long time because 
what you're talking about is kind of the holy grail. If I just unplug my authenticator and my sessions die, that is what we're looking for. That nobody can not just re presume to be who I am because they authenticated as me, but they can't use my sessions any longer. We got a, a bit of work to do uh, to get the web ready for that, but that is what we're pursuing um, because session hijack is, if we get rid of phishing, that's the next place people will focus. Yeah, well, we've definitely got a long way for that first one though, don't we? Yes, we no, that's good. Awesome. I appreciate that. So when we think about the, to so once again, for everybody, th this, you know, we're not trying to say that a physical, at least I'm not trying to say that a physical device is the end all be all. There's no one single solution, I think is what we've hopefully all garnered from this podcast over the last year and a half that, you know, it takes a lot of different approaches to make zero trust or any security strategy work the right way and applicable. I just had to be a very big fan of the physical devices. And that, that being said, so I think this is a good broach into the other piece where we start talking about passwordless environment in general. So, you know, the, the keys are great. I like them, you know, I plug auth and I'm done in a roundabout way for the day. And, you know, it's good. Life is good. I don't get harassed as much as I used to uh, by the systems. And I, I live a happy little quick life. Like you mentioned, ease of use combined with, with actual high level security. But when we start thinking about the future of passwordless security and the environment with, with the biometric -y type stuff and the fingerprinting of a user and what they look like on a keyboard or a session in general. How do you see the YubiKey and, and physical process devices like that being able to mesh with that? I know there's synergistics behind all that, hopefully, and, and being able to still fully enable legit 100% passwordless, you're done, log into your bank simply by you know typing out a phrase, whatever it needs to be, or just doing your day-to-day -day stuff, and with YubiKey in the background doing its fun stuff too. So I think the challenge here is unpacking what people think passwordless means. And so, you know, when we start talking about what is a passwordless authentication experience, we've, we're all accustomed to different types of passwordless experiences every day. One of the ones I use a lot of time to discuss the model with people is your debit card. Anytime you use a debit card, you go in, you present a device, you use your pin. Now you're able to access your account and get your money out. The point in that is that you've possessed something and then there was a secret you had that unlocked that something. So you've really achieved at that point in time, passwordless multi-factor authentication to your account. You know, there was a secret on your credit or your debit card that was used. Well, passwordless to be a value is really got to combine multi-factor authentication into it. And so we've had passwordless authentication schemes on the web for a very long time. That doesn't mean they were secure. That doesn't mean they were phishing resistant. And so when we talk about passwordless at Ubico, we're talking about one of two things. We are talking about FIDO2 authentication, or we are talking about certificate-based authentication, where the certificate or the FIDO2 credential live on that YubiKey. And it's key to talk through the fact that that credential is an electronic set of data that lives on the key that is unlocked by a pin or a biometric, depending on which key you're using, um, to then authenticate to the system. Um, you mentioned earlier, kind of like wanting to get into some of the, uh, the other biometric things that are out there, like user behavior analytics. These are all great risk elements for defining, is the user actually the person that we think is supposed to be using this device? So I don't have to re-auth them. They're not authentication methods. 
they are risk analytics methods for possibly identifying the person. I think we need to be clear that there is a difference between identification and authentication. Is this really Neil or is this the account that Neil has control over? And those are two very different questions. Um, and many times authentication does not require identification. And I want to make sure that we don't blur those two as we're talking about it. Because when people are talking about behavior, they're really identifying, is this the same person that we've seen before? And that's, that's identifying. That's not authenticating. That risk, can, or the, sorry, that biometric is a probabilistic match that this is probably that person. And to what level of probability are you willing to trust? It depends on the system. But why be why trust something that's probably Neil when you can trust something that's definitely the account owner? And so I think that's kind of how I look at that. What do you think? I think it's great. That that's honestly that that's the first I think succinct perspective on the two different sides of the house, because there is there is a group of people that thank you for reminding me of the word, by the way, user analytical behavior stuff. Behavior analytics. See, I can't even say it in English. I speak Spanish too much. Flip words around. That being said, you know. UBA is being tossed about a lot by some entities as, as an authentication, not, not a, not the other way around. So, you know, when we see about the promises of a passwordless world, whether it's at RSA or Gartner or pick a flavor of the day, I think you have two approaches. You have people who live the authentication world, like, like you're in right now. And then you have people who are doing identification with UBA, but they're treating it like authentication as a you know, some kind of potential panacea for the end user to never, ever have to type in anything other than what they want to type in ever again, or use any other devices as a way that a lot of some preach it. So your distinctions, I think are very valid and a very appropriate, a line in the sand for how that should be treated. And so back on the other side of this, being able to use multiple echelons, multiple layers of approach, right. To get that closer to zero trust or to even more aptly, you know, bring the the fidelity level of what you're doing with who you're doing it with and what devices you know all that stuff echelons higher with both pieces of it coming together so thank you for the distinctions like i said you're literally the first person that i've asked this question about that didn't treat it as part of of the authentication piece but so much as the identification side of the house so that, that's cool perspective oh thanks I, and I, I think this comes down to just looking at the problems for a very long time and realizing that um, anytime there's a new trend or anytime there's a new thing, everyone wants to be included in that hot new thing and be a part of it. And the reality is we all have very different and complementary roles to play. And what gets dangerous is when everything becomes that nail for the hammer to hit. And so we, we have very good technology that needs to be in, part of the portfolio if you're building a system for users to sign in. These are things, whether it's UBA, like you mentioned, or it's it's VCs and credentials that sit in wallets on, on the DID side of things. There's a whole nother front we could go down. Everyone wants to be part of the authentication stack. The problem is when you look at the broader account information, when you're trying to deal with identity at the account level, it's not just the authentication event. It's how did that account get registered? It's how does that account get recovered? Is that user the same person? and you start looking at a life cycle, that's when these other things start falling down is to what do I want to rely on for authentication? What prevents phishing? 
what helps me recover the users in efficient, resistant, and self-service way that's simple and easy to use? And how do I actually get to a place where my system stands on its own without having to man a fleet of people across the globe so that they can come in and do account recovery? These are hard challenges. And so we need to make sure all these components work together for identification, authentication, authorization, and all the other A's that are a part of identity. So I could soapbox on this for way too long, but we'll oh, pause. <laughs> You've got... Yeah, you got 18 plus minutes, buddy. I ain't got nowhere to be at the end of this call for at least 15 minutes. Uh, oh, that's dangerous. You shouldn't give me an open mic like that. Hey, that's, this is, this is your platform to, to share and, and have fun. I listened to one of your other podcasts a little bit early this morning from last year, uh, or maybe the year before it's before you moved into this role when you were still doing a service delivery type stuff. And so mm -hmm. this is where I'm getting some of my curiosities from, by the way, is straight from you anyway. Oh, <laughs> uh, that means that, no, that, that's good stuff. So uh, back on track, yeah, when we think about the, the layer that the physical tokens provide, we think about the roll-up of this, I'm going to kind of bring us back into the IT-specific world. So the Cat5 pullers and the server farm guys and gals. You know, I, I focus on that because I, I think where we're at from an exploitation level globally, like what's being targeted, yes, phishing, mouse spam, the end user is still definitely very much targeted. But with the way we look at certain exploit packages, you know, there's been a larger uptick in server-based type things over the last couple of years, uh, whether because of new vulnerabilities or just because of focal points, because of bang for your buck with ransomware and all this other fun stuff. So, you know, for me anyways, and I, if you, question will be if you feel similar to this, at least focusing on staging things and getting in the right direction with, with the passwordless environment, I think from a scale of economics, at least initially, your bigger bang for your buck is with the IT people to get started today, especially in larger enterprises uh, where, you know, where you've got to validate the package, you've got to validate whatever updates and things like that are, but they need to come from that trusted resource, not just the physical persona, but the digital persona as well involved. And, you know, there's a lot of things that manage both of those aspects already. But when we move towards passwordless environments and giving that IT person or the patch management team a little ease of use for authentication. Do you feel like from a starter package that that might be a good place to really focus if you've got to pick as opposed to the whole thing? You think that there's a little bit more impact there or do you think focusing on end users is more impactful first? Like actual just, you know, whoever's sitting at the computer looking at YouTube all day. I think I would change the perspective slightly on the question. Instead of it being which user group, I would look at it as an organization. And what I would say is elevating up to the organization level, you've got really three major buckets, meh, four major buckets that you could talk about in any enterprise. You've got your end users. Everyone talks about the, you know, the end user multi-factor authentication, because especially in the Active Directory world, if I got a presence, if I owned your session in Active Directory and anybody else has logged into that box and I'm able to exploit LSAS and get a credential, now I can privilege escalate and move laterally. And it became this game of moving through the organization. So any foothold was a dangerous foothold. In a cloud-managed environment, it's slightly different because we're not relying as much on things like Kerberos that have these really symmetric key um, assumptions built into the protocol. So end users are important. I think they're one leg of a strategy. I think another leg of the strategy is exactly what you talked about, which is privileged accounts. How do we make sure that the people that have access to the keys of the kingdom 
are doing things simply and securely um, as well. We can't impede their progress. We can't do that. But the, the other third leg in there is actually service accounts and application accounts and all the rest of these things. Because if we're going to truly go passwordless, we now end up with, well, what about all these accounts that run on behalf of somebody or do this other application and batch and process? So I think all of these, those three require a very specific strategy. And that fourth bucket was possibly, you know, as a business, you exist to serve your customers. So where are your external identities, whether it's customers or vendors or suppliers that have access into your environments and whether those are applications or networks. And so you end up needing to have strategies for all of them. The only reason I kind of wanted to flip the question is I don't think you can actually afford in this world to go either or. I think you have to have incremental steps and strategy across all of them in parallel. If you've got the same password being reused on multiple service accounts, you're going to get popped. If you haven't rolled out MFA for your admins, you're going to get popped and it's going to hurt. If you haven't done anything beyond a password for your users, not only are you going to get popped, you're probably going to get popped lots of times and then they're going to find a myriad of different ways to live in your environment for a long period of time. Because the issue of end users is, did they get persistent access on that device after popping the user? What else happened? And so I, I don't think you're posing the wrong question of like, which one of these do I prioritize? But I, I am coming back and saying, I think it, it's worse than just A or B. I think it's all of them. And how do you make an incremental improvement towards password, reducing the risk of the passwords we have for a long time in like managed accounts? And how do I actually go after protecting the accounts that have the keys to the kingdom while using what we have to go out and, pro and protect the end users? It's hard because to choose one, to prioritize one is to neglect the others. And I think all of them represent risk in a significant fashion to an organization. No, that makes sense. Like I said, good perspectives. So I think it's important to know that from, from the vantage points, you know, where obviously those risk profi profiles sit, right? So as an Intel analyst, you know, one of my jobs is to create those threat risk matrices. Yay. Bunch of numbers and some things in an XY coordinate thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, to that point where you're making, you know, I, I, I do agree that if you were to do the risk matrix analysis in general, you would see both of them probably escalated in various reasons up to the top. Right. And so to that end point. Yeah, if, if you, you know, if you need to focus, you should obviously focus on solving the large scale problem across the board and not try to leave too many chinks where you can, right? Uh, yep. So on that note, and I just completely backtracked my brain on where I was going to go with the next question, but uh, that's okay. So we'll get there. So I had a, in a roundabout way, what, what's one of the key things here that you would like to share that we haven't discussed? I'll just throw out that question real quick while my brain catches back up. Yeah, so I think, you know, as you were talking through what I, you know, and processing what I just said, I think there are places to prioritize. Um, and so back to your point, protect your domain admins, protect your cloud admin accounts, start there because the risk, the blast radius for those accounts being compromised significantly higher than um, if an end user gets popped and their end, end machine is owned or their email account is owned. Yes, they all represent different risks, but let's let's get the catastrophic ones off the table first. So start there. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, 
look at the external accounts that have access to your system. When I was at Costco, we had 200,000 employees that had access in the directory. We had 400,000 vendor identities. And so when you're dealing with supply chain, third-party access to your environments, you cannot remove the, or ignore that risk because a lot of times that is scarier than your actual employee access because they may be doing contracted things that have more risk than many of your employees actually represent. <laughs> so, um, you know, the people that manage your money machines, pretty high risk, you know, very attractive accounts. They're not your employees. It's a contract. So it really is about understanding who has access to what and uh, making sure you have a strategy for all of them. Yeah, I think we could do a whole series on supply chain risk management, not just zero trust, but oh, yeah. a lot of other fun things there. But I think on that note, though, I think that's a very valid point. And I used to work at the retail ISAC as as the Intel director there for a small spell. Probably, I don't know when you were at Costco, but that was at retail when it was still RSISC when it first got started. So I don't know if it was around when you were at Costco. But that being said, supply chain risk, it's a thing for any company. It doesn't matter if you're retail, financial, whatever. Everybody's got to get tools from somewhere, digital, physical, so on and so forth. And, you know, there's an anecdote now in the news about Cisco getting in trouble in China. But what does that mean for us here in the States? You know, is that same software still lingering or was it just an add-on? Stuff like that. So when we think about external sources, that that does kind of scare me a little bit for, you know, what piece of, what device, what software, whatever it is that you loaded up and who actually has ask, access to it that you're not aware of. And that's a whole nother ball of wax to go down. Thinking on this a little bit more, if we go down the supply chain just a smidge, um, have you seen enterprises that have necessarily gone out and and procured YubiKeys and things like that or, or made that part of their requirements and things like that, that security protocol for these third-party entities? Have you seen successful utilization of, of contract vehicles to to drive their vendors into a more either zero trust and or password list secure environment type mentality. We're, we've been in conversations with a lot of people that have started to create the capabilities. Um, mandate is a different kind of bar. And so a lot of the places where I saw a lot of early traction with FIDA was in business to business banking. If you're going to have access to this, we want to be able to enforce FIDA authentication. And what it came down to it is this mindset of we need to be able to enforce that it's FIDO. We just don't want to own the operating complexity for managing token hardware fleet for our vendors. And that's actually the beauty of, of FIDO in this case is you're starting to see in more and more of the vendor management products support for FIDO authentication. And so as a enterprise, if I have vendors and suppliers that sign in, I can start to work into my contract vehicles. You will bring a FIDO authenticator uh, to access our services so that we can um, reduce the risk of phishing here and uh, without necessarily some of the older models of now I need to go buy tokens for everyone that accesses my organization. It just never was going to fit in a CISO's budget. But being able to say thou shalt go buy a FIDO authenticator is something where it distributes the cost and management out to your vendors and suppliers where, okay, now I've got to buy five YubiKeys for these five users signing in that's something as a supplier I can manage versus as the core enterprise. I don't want to go buy hundreds of thousands of keys to put out to or 
suppliers who may change um, because the business model, you know, our partnership and relationships change there. Um, I think the biggest challenge there is actually contractual, not technical. Yeah. It's making sure that these long-term contracts say, no, you need to eat this cost of, of signing into our system. And they're small costs, but it's, it's all the things that add up into part of the business relationship. But with the right imperatives, it will move forward. Nice. Yeah. It's something that I think I'm dealing with on this side of the fence for my nine to five in a good way, in a good way. So Elliot, I know we've got a few minutes left. I want to give you a chance to at least ask one question uh, towards the end here. So <laughs> yeah, so usually this is about the time where I try to, I don't know, throw out not necessarily stump, stumping question, um, but one that probably would open up to a rabbit hole. Instead, I would love to talk a little bit about, talk smack maybe, <laughs> about a particular platform, uh, which is just continuously making every terrible decision under the sun. Microsoft? Only because, wh which one? I said Microsoft. No, go on. No, it's way worse than that. So I will hone this in into to this conversation in particular. So obviously 2FA, um, multi-factor in particular, it comes in a lot of different flavors. And we already addressed that SMS base. Not, not the best choice, but it is a choice. And if, you know, we have one choice and that's it, fine, cool. Um, but I love your perspective on, outside of maybe it being a cost savings for a certain company that has a bluebird for a logo uh, that made the pivot to only allow um, that free option. You know, what do you feel like the risk outcome might be out of a situation like this? Um, obviously, again, there is still multi-factor available, but, you know, if you're going to completely lob off an arm that was a little bit more secure in nature. Well, actually, no, I, I, I think I might have that backwards. It was less secure on the SMS side, but they were reducing the availability because the user experience, that's probably uh, the better way to position that I had that backwards. Um, so what is your perspective on that? Maybe like if we're looking at it from like a risk reduction perspective, do we feel that the amount of people that got cut off from SMS, maybe went to an authenticator app or something like that, or yeah, I would just love your perspective. As somebody who's managed MFA deployments, the way that that went out would have never, would have never been a, a strategy or a plan that I would have gone with. However, I am actually very pleased to see that it went out the way it did. The faster that we get rid of SMS OTP, the better. It is a, it's not even a picket fence of security. It is really this, it's this false sense of that I've done something um, and that it's, it, it continues to be okay. Uh, you talk about SimJack and you talk about all these other places where SMS OTP is what stands between people and their accounts. It's, it's dangerous. And then if you're talking about, I'm operating the infrastructure that is sending out this SMS OTP codes, like why spend the money, just shut it off and spend that money and develop something with support for FIDO2 and WebAuth in, your users will actually be secure. You will save money in the long run and you will have improved the user experience. The worst user experience out there is one of the banks that I deal with, uh, where I have to provide my password twice because I, when I sign in the first time, it uses my username and password. Then it sends me an OTP code. I have to bring over that OTP code and type my password in again to sign back into this bank. Like, why? What am I doing? I've cost a ton of money because every one of those SMSs 
you're paying for. And that's the legitimate ones. And then you're dealing, you know, and we haven't actually improved security. So, you know, if you've got my password in the first place, getting SimJack in my phone is probably not all that hard. Getting it transferred is probably not all that complicated. So, I mean, the, the problem we have here is it looked like a bad idea because of how it was rolled out. It was a great result for security in the long run, which is let's rip out this stuff that is giving us a false sense of security. And honestly, the only people that win in the SMS OTP game are the telco providers that are charging you to send that SMS code. Every single time I trigger, if I'm doing a password spray attack and I'm just slamming your directory with all these username and passwords, there goes three cents. And how hard is it to hit you with 100,000 requests in an hour? Well, that starts to add up to real money out of your IT budget for what? I love it. You just, see, there we go. I, I teed something up. We did not have to go down a rabbit hole and you knocked it out of the park. Uh, that That's what I was going for. <laughs> totally meant that. Now, thank you for putting that into the proper perspective. I think it was, you know, that was generally what we saw from like the community in the cybersecurity world that they just need to rip off that band-aid for SMS in general, but maybe communication was lacking in that situation. There is a better way to position it, I guess, is probably out there. But yeah, I think you knocked that out of the park. That's definitely something we need to probably remove that safety blanket, uh, which is just actually a bunch of holes and mostly rags and yarn at this point. Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate that. Because I think at the end of the day, we need to do some things that are a little bit more radical to make some improvements here quickly. I believe when you know you look at pass keys and some of the stuff that's coming out, there's going to be more and more options out there. But the longer that we hold on to these tattered rigs, I like that phrasing, of SMS OTP as a security blanket, the the worse that our end users are going to be. I'm just hopeful that we can figure out a way to make it easy for the users to adopt a better security solution, not just rip it out of their hands and wait and see what happens. So, yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, I will say you almost opened up that, that can of worms. I would love almost an endless series focus on user experience as it relates to cybersecurity, because that is probably like the biggest pain point that everyone ignores. Any, you know, startup organization that has a new vendor product, just like, uh, you know, end users are rarely concerned. Anyways, without trying to bring us down there and keeping this going much further than it needs to, uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective and your insight and your expertise. I really appreciate you being here, um, you know, poking a little bit at Neil, which I always love to see. Hey, I, this has been a great experience. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for having me on. And, you know, maybe we will go down that rabbit hole of user experience and security someday in the future, because I think that is a that is an untapped um, message that needs to really be hit well. So thank you for having me. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.